Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and this is the 205th episode of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. Last episode, I offered thoughts on social media by way of two essays I had written a decade prior. This time, I want to return to the present, but again with two essays, but written barely a week ago. The topic is, well, feelings, desires, intentions... Discussion of such matters seems to me to be needed now if we are to achieve liberation and avoid abomination. I titled the first such effort, Attitude. Thus, what attitude might we have for these crazy, dangerous times? I titled the second effort, Dear Hope. It is a kind of open letter to young people who, for the purpose, I named Hope. Okay, first, Attitude. Charles Dickens wrote, Consider nothing impossible, then treat possibilities as probabilities. It was an advisory, an attitude. Your neighbor might write, nothing is possible, people suck, it is what it is, paste on a smile, take a selfie, make the best of it. Another advisory, another different attitude. You might go with one of the above, or you might instead say, wake me when it's over. If I expired meanwhile, please see that my grave is kept clean supposing you are alive to do so. Or, unbowed, maybe you say, look around, everywhere roots of resistance, everywhere workers, blacks, women, trans, immigrants, and more wake up and face up. Forget the small stuff. It's time to win a new world. Dismiss anything less. My question, what the hell should be our attitude in times like these? Well, first, what are these times like? Today is undeniably among the worst of times. Human atomization is rampant. Human incivility is epidemic. Ecological nightmares run from this midnight to next midnight, and then again, everywhere. War rages. Judges trumpet their own soiled personal practices and impose frustrated depression on everyone else. Majorities reject even modest change. Even rebels can't conceive mass action. U.S. sports pundits and fans grotesquely debate whether this or that athlete deserves a quarter-billion-dollar contract or a little less, or maybe a little bit more. Policy pundits discuss nuclear options for societal suicide. Stage right, sanity exits. Stage left, barbs fly at friends. Yet today is arguably also the best of times. Mutual aid surfaces and grows. Attention to others' feelings rallies. Justified anger boils. Young people address climate, sexual subjugation, racist repression, and economic rights and responsibilities. A society of laws sees that it ought to be a society where justice trumps law. Sports, even sports, however clumsily, however half-assed, starts to clean house. Athletes, despite gargantuan contracts, start to speak their minds beyond exerting their muscles. The tone and tenor of resistance diversifies. People want peace and also justice. People reject what's barbaric, colonial, and domineering. People advocate alternatives to capitalism, patriarchy, and racism. People practice mutual aid against rising tides and flooding rivers. People research causes of oppression to propose destinations for change. A fledgling movement fights again and again. Workers unionize. Movements amass strength as they battle. Activists organize. 
By the standard of winning big gains, this movement will for a while lose, lose, lose. By the standard of daily growing bigger, broader, more committed, and more competent, this movement can win, win, win. First smaller and then larger changes to improve people's lives now and to simultaneously create desires and conditions to win more and finally fundamental changes tomorrow. But this is also the age of foolishness. Goodbye thoughtfulness and wisdom. People with advanced degrees, with decades of education and reading, and with access to unlimited information. People who monopolize legal, medical, engineering, and administrative information. And especially economists, political scientists, managers, and media pundits overwhelmingly prattle the most nonsensical idiocy. We liberate what we subjugate, they pontificate. We uplift in a world that fears our every move, they salivate. We celebrate democracy, but ignore the will of whole populations, including our own. Their bombs spread violent silence. Our bombs implant freedom. Empire is what we reject, not the touchstone of our behavior. Those with the highest education deny fact. They ridicule reason. They preach against even meager moral decency. In America, the more we watch, the less we know. In America, the more education we get, the more politically deluded we become. In America, garbage rises. Yet this is also the age of wisdom. The taxi driver and meatpacker, the nurse and train steward, the dishwasher, maid, teacher, and drugstore cashier, the truck driver and the assembler, they all know injustice pervades the hierarchies of wealth and power that they daily encounter in schools, at work, in hospitals, in court, and in every other pursuit that crosses paths with gold-plated power. They all know that everything is broken. They all know, even if they don't always want to admit it, that Trump is soulless, that TV promotes illusion, and that mainstream journalism bolsters profit and power. The commercial and the crass broadcast everywhere to capture our every attention, yet they nonetheless fail to win people's hearts and minds. People start to gain awareness, consciousness, and even, ever so slowly, confidence. The public becomes poetic. So in these complicated times, what attitude should dissidents have? Should we proclaim our glass labeled hope, four-fifths empty and leaking further, fast? Or should we proclaim our glass labeled hope, four-fifths full and filling further, fast? We look around, out windows, on streets, guzzling YouTube. We see what algorithms feed us. Mainstream media distorts, corrupts, and channels. We used to have manipulative media that delivered whatever truthful information fit well with protecting their system and gaining eyeballs and revenues. We now have ludicrous media that delivers whatever half-assed lying nonsense they can manufacture to best protect their system and gain eyeballs and revenues. Outside, it's a mess. Inside, what attitude for me, what attitude for you? That's our point here in this essay, I interject. What should we be feeling thinking in a world that is simultaneously as disgustingly, vilely dangerous and damaging? I'm not going to lie. Your neighbor with his pasted-on smile. Your neighbor with her eyes on the ground. They have a point. To see what's out there over and over and over hurts. To see it over and over and over embitters. So your neighbors conclude... 
Why not ignore the onrushing pain? Why not make the best of a bad scene? Why not announce, nothing is possible, it is what it is, paste on a smile, take a selfie, make the best of it? Why not? Because the selfies we take will show us swan diving all the way to hell. Well then, why not buck up and instead announce, look around, everywhere roots of resistance spread, everywhere workers, blacks, women, trans, immigrants, and more, wake up and face up. Forget the small stuff. It's time to win a new world. Dismiss anything less. The spirit of that feels better, but small stuff matters. Without small gains, there will be no big gains. Defeatist attitude decays efforts. Fact, if you think you are going to lose, you are going to lose. Triumphalist attitude marginalizes efforts. Fact, the revolution won't triumph soon enough to curtail our current slipside to oblivion. Changes we win short of installing new institutions will have to curtail oblivion. That fucking matters. Changes we win, even amidst old institutions, will have to be a school for and chart a path to the revolution that will not just save but also liberate humanity. That too fucking matters. Attitude? We need confident, steadfast, accurate thought that can propel calm, informed, and continually escalating efforts. The Italian revolutionary Antonio Gramsci urged that we need pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Perhaps his advisory to perceive rather than ignore rising fascism and to simultaneously keep forefront the need to win worthy socialism was brilliant wisdom for his day. Today, however, call me blasphemous, but I think applied now his advisory is almost the opposite of wise. Now we instead need optimistic intellect and realistic will. Why? Well, pessimism of the intellect urges that we look at reality to find what is bad, what is horrible, and to explain why it persists. We shouldn't shy away from that. We should find it, tell the truth about it. And yes, of course, we need to be honest about current dangers. But do we need an entreaty urging us to do that? Is pessimism of the intellect in short supply? I don't think it is. Quite the contrary. I think what is in short supply is optimistic intellect. What is in short supply is to look forward to what can and should be. What is in short supply is to look at the present for what can galvanize support on the road to what can and should be. So yes, we need clarity about our current plight, but we also need clarity about our potential to achieve another destiny. What is in excess supply is pessimistic intellect. What is in short supply, and thus sorely needed, is optimistic intellect. What about will? I get Gramsci's sentiment, but as an advisory for leftists today, again, I think it isn't quite what we need. Put optimistic will on top of ubiquitous pessimistic intellect, and at best we are likely to get magical proclamations of vague aims that will convince few and accomplish little. Even added to optimistic intellect, I suspect to urge optimistic will may provoke chance that we want the world and we want it now, rather than provoke a wise but no less militant mindset that we want the world and we know it will take much time and many steps but we are steadfastly in it to win it. So I say for attitude, in our complicated situation, 
We need optimistic intellect and realistic will. Okay, so having written that, spewed that onto a page, after a pause, I felt, okay, that's an essay, but hold on, there is more. And it came out in another essay, titled Dear Hope. It went like this. Who the hell is hope? Hope is, hopefully, you. But if you are over 50, or perhaps over 40, maybe even over 30, getting into the hope column is likely to depend on folks younger than you prodding you along, or even providing paths for you to pursue. If you are over 60, much less over 70 and on your way to 80, like me, well, let's do our best, but the reality is that the future lies with young people. So hope is young people, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years old. And this is a message to hope. First, a word or two about words. Reading is good. It matters. But to read means others must write. Where are the young who are writing and writing well? Some are certainly doing so, but too few. Why? Many old-timers solicit, urge, and prod, but the flow from the young is still only a growing river compared to the youthful oceanic deluge that society needs. And worse, reading, which was once a part of life like breathing, is now becoming a lost art, steadily dissipating into morbid disuse. Yes, many people, especially young people, survey social media nuggets, but those nuggets are often sterile and short. So how will rich insights get learned, taught, and spread? And second, what about the streets? Post-60-year-olds, even post-50, and likely also post-40-year-olds, cannot flood them properly. Too many ties hold oldsters back. Family responsibilities, health, and interminable schedules interfere. Cranky perfectionism and creaky exhaustion interfere. And then there is cynicism, not to mention me-firstism. Only the young can make sufficient space in their lives, minds, and desires to detonate dissent. Only the young have sufficient vigor, sufficient numbers, sufficient mobility, and sufficient capacity to spur innovative insight, wisdom, and commitment. Only the young can make the world turn in new ways. Are some young people trying to do just that? Yes, they are. But is it enough? No, not even close. Okay, this may seem unfair. Some old-timer, me, lucky enough to have spent his critical years in the cauldron of creativity and commitment called the 60s, now, a near lifetime later, berates, cajoles, and entreats the young to generate much more energy, information, activism, and construction. By what standards dare I do such a thing? Surely, if success is the standard, my generation has no right to cajole. Yes, we got off to an impressive start, raucous and righteous. Our efforts did restrain the warmongers. Our efforts did birth women's, Latinx, environmental, gay, and lesbian movements. There was heroism, there were gains, but we wanted the world and we wanted it now. We did a lot, no one can deny that, but as time passed, our energy and commitment aged. What's our legacy? Well, look around. What did we bequeath those who followed? Some knowledge, some memory, some organization, some media, even some mentors and lessons. But honestly, certainly not the world we wanted you to have. Whatever else we accomplished, we failed at that, and that was the point of it all. So where do I get off asking you to deliver what we didn't deliver? Well, what's the alternative? Now, like it or not, it is your turn. 
Are you going to do better or is everyone going to die? That, it seems, is the real choice now. Today's trends could not be more obvious. Surveillance is stratospheric. Poverty and centralized wealth push us back toward the 16th century. War and its machinery has seemingly become life's prime want, at least when life marches to the beat set by capital and power. Massacres are commonplace. Incarceration is the new slavery. Person by person, way too often, goodbye to glory, hello hate. Look yonder. Is that a new Nazi party organizing our deathbeds over there? You bet it is. Meanwhile, oceans rise and storms multiply. People drown, melt, freeze, or just plain shuffle into what looks like a grim, dismal future. What's blowing in the wind now? A permanent hard rain. What's that sound? Boom. Die by drone. Boom. Die by missile. Whoosh. Die by rising tides and howling winds. Fukushima or Facebook, which is worse? In my formative years, the 60s, I was never apocalyptic. But now, paranoia is the new wisdom. What do you see in your future? Buzzards or struggle? Hey, hey, look anywhere. In our face, evidence says it is time for thorough, militant, sustained activism. If not, buzzards for everyone. What makes it not fair to berate the young, as if they are not fulfilling their destiny, is that it was so much easier for my generation to rise up. Who am I to urge today's youth to do what was easier in my day, and yet what we ultimately didn't succeed at anyhow? Back in my generation's glory days, we enjoyed a perfect storm of innovative, inspiring, and role-breaking phenomena, from hipsters to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Couple that to daily discovering utterly shocking revelations in southern bus stations, northern riots, and interminable impressions of Indochina bombarded to near oblivion. USA, USA, all lies. USA, USA, destroyed the city to save it, again and again. All this together engendered what we then called a massive mindfuck. The world wasn't what we had been told. It wasn't what we expected. Our synapses somersaulted, our nerves combusted. We felt unbridled anger at hypocrisy. We went to books, we went to barricades. But hold on, let's not exaggerate. Even in those heady days, it was never everyone who read, marched, and fought. Indeed, it was never more than in some total, counting every dissident path, perhaps 10 million, or let's even say 20 million, who greatly or even loosely self-identified as part of what was percolating. And most important, it was far fewer who really, seriously, fully turned on to making fundamental change. And yet that was nonetheless a whole lot. And some of us even stuck with it for decades. So what is different about your situation, Hope? Why can't I just scream at you, get up and do it again? Do it the way we did it, Hope, but much better. The answer is, to replicate the path followed then is now impossible. There is no contemporary shock at hypocrisy to fuel activism, nor will there be. When people today hear that your every word is recorded, that the sky is falling, that drones devastate over there and are being stockpiled here too, nothing much happens. Ho-hum, life goes on, however debased. It just doesn't matter what is revealed. High water rising, heat waves cooking, bombs are dropping. What is, just seeing it, doesn't really shock folks. It doesn't newly outrage folks, including most young folks, 
because most everyone takes for granted that things are way worse than any event ever reveals. We know they spy on everything. We know they assassinate with impunity. We know they discuss invasions like they are highway repair projects with as much regard for human corpses as they have for rodents that get in the way of earth movers. We know they tally broken homes, starving kids, and guns spewing death in American schools, churches, and malls as signs of elite victory over the threat that the population might become too educated, too involved in anything but fearful survival. And we the people say to it all, yes, sure, it is horrid, but what's new on TV, in the movies, at the Apple store? Because, well, we can use what is new in culture and in the commodity market, but we can do nothing about what is new in the trouble tally in the Inhumanity Index. Poverty climbs so that over a fifth of America's children endure it and suffer its lifelong repercussions, and around the world, billions more. Ho-hum, what's new in La La Land? Antarctica is melting. Yes, of course. Pass the ketchup, please. Sure, deep down everyone knows everything is broken. So reports of the bad fail to provoke resistance and instead only nurture hopeless cynicism. So what distinguishes now from back in my generation's day is that for hope to take to the streets in the millions, in the tens of millions, and much more, and not just to take to the streets, but to develop and retain and act on lessons of resistance and of serious thought about desires and aims for a worthy future until victory, will require something very different than what jump-started the 60s. It will take really hard work. Revealed horrors won't yield much. People will have to constructively, productively, continuously reveal what can be better and how to attain it. There is another factor as well. Back in the day, when some young people on a campus, shocked by revelations that all was not remotely as we had been told, went rogue, meaning when we became criminal in the eyes of our parents, neighbors, friends, and faculty, when we became walking, talking, horribly threatening oddities, we had a place to go to look for our lies. We could easily hang out wherever young people had been already open to rebellious inclinations by the also emerging hippie phenomenon, which was pretty much everywhere young folks congregated. Do not fold, spindle, mutilate. The recently highly politicized had a giant pool of ready and in some cases even eager people to recruit help from. That advantage that we once had is missing now. Nothing quite like what propelled resistance then exists now. First, there is no outrage, shock, and horror at revelation. That simply can't happen anymore. Everything bad is expected and worse. There is not naivete to offend. Second, also missing is any prospect of really easy, sustainable organizing. Alienation at ticky-tacky prospects, coupled to music becoming incendiary, coupled to people having a lot of time on their hands, created a ready army of potential partners earlier. But that is in the past. So we have to face the hard truth. For hope to surface beyond nooks and crannies and to become intense and solid will take hard work. First, break passivity in oneself. Second, break passivity in others. Become goal-seeking. Maintain ourselves against the grain of every pressure around us, not only from the mainstream, but even from most of so-called alternative culture. And then, finally, move past passivity to galvanize passionate, positive desire. 
Move past wild negative anger to share positive vision. Seek gains now, over and over. Conceive to lead to more gains later until we achieve our vision. In bad economic times, it is hard to break from financial accounting practices. In self-centered, harping, whining times, it is hard to consider wider aims and implications. Without doing such things, however, we can't sustain ourselves to tirelessly seek better. When one doubts that anyone else will ever do anything lasting, it is hard to motivate oneself to do something lasting. Yet without achieving lasting commitment, there is nothing. Make struggle last, tenacious, tireless, continuous. But wait, maybe I'm being just a little too hard on my own generation. Think back again, not to 1968, but earlier, to 1962, say. What became the full-blown 60s just a few years later had its foundations laid then, and earlier too. And who did that? Lonely souls risking their friendships, their family ties, their future, and even their health and safety. Lonely souls who dissented when dissent was simply unheard of. So it is harder now in some ways, but it is also easier in other ways. There was no digital megaphone with which to reach a large audience then. At the outset, look at all the lonely people. Then some resisted, some persisted, some burned or sold out, some kept on keeping on. But first, all woke up. Maybe that is the real analogy to now. We need to wake up, not as in those past times, to escape utter ignorance and attain anger, but in these current times, to escape lethargic defeatism and attain vision-fueled desire. But hell, weren't Occupy and Me Too and Black Lives Matter huge? Yes, they certainly were, and that's partly a reflection of the easier part. People's underlying cynicism about contemporary relations and anger at contemporary crimes provided a substrate, and modern internet tools provided quick communications. So we had massive surges, seemingly arising on the spot. It will happen again, but the issue we now face isn't to have a one-year or two-year upsurge that devolves over the long haul. The issue we now face is to have an upsurge able to construct lasting movements, lasting organization, lasting vehicles of outreach, and to construct carefully wrought and truly inspiring examples and messages. Can you hope do that? If we are talking possibility, the biology and even the physics of it, of course hope can do that. But will hope do that? I don't know. It will be a matter of will, psychology, and personality. It will require the courage to be different, not so much in values as in actions, and not so much in the exciting visible aspect, easy to jump on that, but in the face-to-face -face organizing aspect and in the reaching out to those who disagree aspect, and not so much in the celebratory aspect as in the learning and teaching aspect. It is already starting to happen in labor organizing, reproductive rights organizing, anti-racist organizing, anti-fascist organizing, and ecological organizing, each and all clearly on the rise. What we can certainly now say is that this time, it is not sufficient that the young rebel because folks are suffering immensely, as occurred in the 60s, but that the young rebel this time out of positive desire and because there just aren't going to be any more chances. Hope comes through now or we all watch a horrendous debacle unfold planet-wide. Are you going to be hope? That said, 
This is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.